This is the Angry Birds Bird Minute, sponsored by Angry Birds for their 15th anniversary, where we tell you all about a cool bird, which may or may not be angry. This week's bird is the Archaeopteryx. The word Archaeopteryx means old wing and refers to a genus of dinosaurs that existed in the Jurassic period and are, depending on where you draw the line, some of the earliest birds. Archaeopteryx were roughly the size of ravens and had a lot in common with pre-avian dinosaurs, including teeth and long, bony tails. What they did have, though, were feathers, wings, and hollow bones, all traits common across most modern birds. Their wings are relatively large for their bodies, implying they may have been adapted for short flights through dense underbrush, where slow speeds and tight turning abilities are advantageous. If you haven't seen a picture of an Archaeopteryx fossil before, you should totally check out the specimen linked in the show notes. They are really amazing. But are they angry? Unlike most modern birds, Archaeopteryx's wings ended in three clawed fingers. On a scale of one to angry, we rate the Archaeopteryx as up in arms. This is Wild Green Streams. I'm Rhett. I'm Io. <laughs> I'm Curtis. What's your, what are, what are we calling this? Could have been an exciting near-death experience, but actually you were okay. But at the time, it was very scary. We can shorten that. That's the episode title. That's perfect. So mine that I'll share, I guess, I was in Ocala National Forest for work and there was no cell reception in the forest and I would be out on my own all day. And I was in a truck that broke down about 50% of the time. I was walking back from one of my field sites and... I felt something searing brush against my arm and I said, ouch, what was that? And looked down and there was a grid shaped pattern of dots on my arm and it was swelling in like a little rectangle around it. It was like the most orderly squares that I've ever seen in nature, basically. I'm thinking annihilation vibes right now. I haven't seen it, so I wouldn't know, but maybe... And then that little swelling spread very quickly. So in the like four minutes it took for me to get to my truck, my arm kind of blew up like a balloon, but it was creeping upwards. It wasn't like my arm was swelling all at once. It was creeping upwards in like a wave and it crept around my arm and it made my arm big enough that I couldn't put it down at my side. I felt like little nodules expanding and it got around to this lymph node under my arm here, got big. At this point, I was thinking... Well, it made my arm and my side swell up that much in about five minutes. So what's it going to do if it goes like up to my throat? Where was this again? This was in the middle of Ocala National Forest, which is a a national forest about the size of like Everglades National Park, not the greater Everglades, but the national park itself in like north central Florida. It's all sandhills. So it's like rolling pine savanna. I ran a herpetological survey there for about a year. So here's the part where the story peters out because I got out of the woods. I literally had to take this bumpy, broken truck through bumpy, broken roads. I knew the exact spot where cell coverage started. So I said, I have to get there before (laughs) this swelling gets up to my throat or does something else that I don't want to find out about. So I got all the way there. It was about 30 minutes to drive there. I got to that spot. And exactly as I made it to that spot, the swelling and the wave of the rash and everything reversed and crept all the way back in like the exact reverse pattern of how it had expanded. And then I was left with a grid-shaped scar on my arm for a couple months, which I was very disappointed when I found out that it would go away eventually. 
but I never found the caterpillar, but I think I ran into a pus caterpillar maybe just based on the intensity of the reaction. But that's my story that becomes a non-story because I survived okay. Yeah, story.com becomes a non-story because you survived okay. It's like, they're, you're like, oh, I almost wish there was more danger so it could be more riveting, but also like, thank goodness, yeah. like nothing bad happened. But those caterpillar yeah. stings are no joke. I did, I had, it was a very minor, it wasn't like a huge reaction, but I was cutting some branches of these little oak saplings to put for an animal enclosure where I worked. And I was, I like brushed up and I was like, ah, oh, what was that? And I looked and it was an, an oak tussock moth caterpillar this little green fuzzy guy and then i was like be gone with you and then like threw it into you know the woods but it hurt a lot like and i only barely brushed it and i'm like i feel like this is dispro like the amount of pain i'm in is disproportionate to the size of you like it feels mm -hmm. and also like i'm not gonna have a, a scar it's kind of like when you eat something if you eat something really spicy and you're not accustomed to it like if mm -hmm. like you eat like you know a ghost pepper and you're not used to eating ghost peppers you feel like you're in so much pain but outwardly you don't really look that bad and you're like i don't even have anything to show for this that i went through yeah. like i don't i'm not even yeah. gonna get like a cool scar from this like a story to tell just be like trust me guys one time a caterpillar stung me and it hurt a lot and there you go like i feel like there needed to be a hospital trip in order for it to be a story that's really worth telling. Yeah. Like, like I don't want to actually have been like injured or anything in the long run, but if I had had to go to the hospital and then it had started going down, I feel like it would be a much better story. Yeah. Until you got hit with the hospital bill and then it would be not a very fun story. That's true. I have to make it up with this mad podcast money. Yeah, exactly. I may or may not have told this story on the podcast before, but it was a, one of those could have been very bad at the time, but then ended up being kind of a non-story. It was when I was in, I did a study abroad in Kenya when I was in university. And we, part of what we were doing when we were there is we would create a little research project basically where we were in groups um, of like four or five of us, I think. And we would come up with like, okay, this is what our hypothesis, this is how we want to test it. We'd go out, collect the data, analyze it, and then present it to the rest of the class. And so what we were doing was looking at, and this was in the Lakipia region in Kenya, the black cotton ecosystem, which is a different soil that's there. There's lots of acacia trees and all sorts of stuff. And so there's a lot of people who have cattle as like their livelihood, their pastoralists. And, but also there's just like wild animals, big megafauna, like everywhere. Like it's, it's a little, you know, coming from, you know, the United States where like maybe the biggest thing that you might pass on your like daily commute is like a deer depending on where you live in the states most places in the states i would say but like we're just like driving to and from where we we're going there's giraffes walking by there's elephants walking by you're, like you're in very close proximity to these large megafauna and so we were going out into this area and we were doing transects to see if the presence of i think it was if the presence of cattle changed the presence of zebra or it was it was the presence of zebra changed the grazing of cattle so they had a couple different mm -hmm. so an experiment that had already been done because zebra and cattle compete for the same resources and so they had already had done these exclusion plots where they had set up you know this is where no animals go at all this is where only wild animals can go this is only the cattle this is, you know, all their different combinations. And we were 
doing surveys for different animal dung, which we had previously in the course ha- had an done an exercise called a tale of two shitties where we went out and collected as much different kinds of animal poop that we could and then learned how to identify them all which was really cool and so we were going you know walking transects was like you know 100 meters walk along a line and count you know different animal dung that you see and whenever we went anywhere out into the wild or you know outside the kind of like fenced sort of area of the the place we were staying we had some of the like their guides and like the guards like the people who worked there who knew the area to like help keep an eye out for us and like you know they knew things to look for and and how to keep us safe because as you know there's animals all around and Everyone gives carnivores a lot of shit. We as a society, in my opinion, don't give enough credit to the large herbivores as being dangerous. They're so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's like, oh no, a bear. It's like I would much rather run into like a black bear than like a deer that was like in rut or whatever. You know, like they no one people don't give enough credit to to big herbivores as being very dangerous, especially like elephants and buffalo could ruin your whole day. But so we were going out and this was our third spot of the day or third site that we were going to sample. And we were walking in we were with our guide. His name was John. And he was walking ahead of us. And then all of a sudden he turned to us and said, like, shh, 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 like, quiet, quiet. And we were all like, what is it? We we're just like stock still looking. And he like picks up a rock and throws it. And there's two hyenas that run away from us. And we were like, oh, shit, we haven't seen hyenas this close. And also it's during the day. Like it was like, I don't know, noon, 2 p.m. Sun high in the sky. And so we were like, whoa, that's like cool. Like what a close call. And then we were like, okay, we'll like continue with the rest. We were like, okay, we'll work further away and then work our way back to the van that we had used to drive up here. And we start and walking towards the other transects line. And then John turns around and just goes like, go, go. Like and motioning with his hand for us to run back to the van. And we were like, if he's telling us to move quickly and quietly, it's clearly something that is important. And I was thinking back to when we first got there, they were like, okay, if you encounter, you know, different animals, like what should your response generally be? Like if it's a large herbivore, run. If it's a cat, like a lion or a leopard or something, don't run because that can trigger their prey response and so that you know you know be really big make lots of noise all this stuff and so we were running back to the van which was a couple hundred meters at least through ground that is not flat because these aforementioned massive animals had been making pock marks in the ground as they stomp through so trying to run as fast as possible but also trying to not twist an ankle and then become a liability into whatever we were running away from. And so we were running through, there's acacia trees, which have these big thorns on them. So getting all scratched up on our arms and stuff, trying not to drop things. And we get back to the vehicle, you know, panting. And we're like, John, what, like, what was it? What was it? And he was like, there was a big male lion right there. Like it looked at me and got up and turned around and walked away. And I was like, Cause the whole time I was like, oh, we just, maybe it's a couple more hyenas. Like no problem. Like if it's like one hyena or something, like not a huge thing. If it's a whole clan, no problem. but he was like, there was a big line right there. And there was like a female line sleeping next to, next to him. And I was like, oh, and so like the, the fear came in, but also the danger had already passed since we were back at the Jeep and we were like, 
okay, I guess we're fine. But then realizing like, because none of us had seen it, but he was only a couple steps ahead of us and he had seen them right there. So we were, you know, a few meters away from them. And then they like radioed and called the other, the Ascari, the guards, the people who were with us and went check it out. And the lions had made a kill in the area. And so they were sleeping and chilling as lions tend to do. So that's why the hyenas were there because the hyenas like to steal the lion kills. And apparently there were also, I think also some cubs that were possibly with them. So like just general lion territoriality, protecting a kill, protecting cubs. It could have been quite dangerous. And then we were like all the other groups that were kind of in the area. We were like, you know, radioed all of them. We we're like, OK, everyone go back to camp. We're not going to do any more field work today, <laughs> whatever. And so like when we ran our statistical data, we like didn't we only were like we only have two replicates because we had to run away from lions. So, you know, the statistics might be a little iffy, but the process is there. But Amazing. it was like one of those things where I'm like, whoa, this like could have been really dangerous. But then, you know, at the end, you're like, oh, we weren't, you know, disemboweled. What a boring story, but it's still very exciting. I was like, this is probably the closest that I've come, at least knowingly, to to dying in the wild. So, you know, it yeah. was a fun time. You know, you know what it's reminding me of? The whole like, oh God, the hyenas are the threat we're running from. And then being like, oh, this isn't that bad. We're, we're, we're fine. Uh, you know the scene with the Alaskan bullworm? Um, yes. SpongeBob, where Sandy is like beating the crap out of the worm. And then SpongeBob's just like, Sandy, that's not the worm. And it's the worm's tongue. Where yes. you're just like, guys, it wasn't the hyenas. hyenas we're not the problem here yeah there's this crazy fact that i heard about recently that they did a study where they tracked hyena cubs they tested a bunch of them for which ones had toxoplasmosis and which ones didn't and then they tracked them and just saw what happened as they you know moved through their lives and a statistically significant amount of the cubs which had toxo got eaten by lions before growing up, like specifically by lions too. It wasn't just that they died. For people who don't know toxoplasmosis, would you care to elaborate, Rhett, for those who may not be aware of the wonders in our That's natural world? Suspiciously, like Io doesn't know what toxoplasmosis I, is, but okay. I do no, I know, know, you know, but I don't want to steal your thunder. It's your story. <laughs> I also know what it is to a very detailed extent and would rather Rhett say it because I'm Sounds like you don't know, Curtis. <laughs> Toxo is like cordyceps. If cordyceps was instead of trying to like climb the tallest structure, it was trying to make you get eaten by a cat. It's not a fungus. It's some kind of microorganism. And it what we're going to do actually is identify all the things I don't know about Toxo in this story. <laughs> it's a it's a some kind of microscopic it's a parasite. Protozoan. Protozoan. There we go. And what it does and we don't really know how but it makes at least certain mammals have personality changes that will make them more likely to get eaten by cats so its target quote unquote group of animals is often rodents which makes sense and it actually gets them to become very bold and it makes them walk around in daylight and it makes them attracted to the smell of cat pee <laughs> so they just they just straight up get eaten that's its life cycle it, it gets into the rodent the rodent walks up to a cat, basically gets eaten, goes into the cat, you know, and then the circle of life continues. But Toxo actually affects lots of other species of mammals as well in lots of different ways, but it's spread around the world with house cats. And, you know, we keep encountering it in all these new novel environments with new kinds of mammals. And it does sometimes very interesting things and sometimes the exact same thing. So in the case of the hyenas and the lions, that's pretty 
similar. Like the hyena cub accidentally gets exposed to lion poop, contracts toxo, walks up to a lion basically, or somehow is not, somehow increases its odds of getting predated. And then the cycle continues. It's almost like this parasite in ecological terms works together with cats. So it makes their food much easier to catch. And in return, (laughs) they spread it everywhere. Yeah. And people can get it as well, but it doesn't have the like exact same effects. But I think it's like, it's really only kind of like a problem. I think if you're pregnant, don't quote me, not a medical doctor, but um, it's like, because as you said, house cats can spread it. So it can be contracted by people, but it's not, it's not going to have the same effects as poor said hyena cubs in the study. It's unclear exactly how it affects us because it's hard to collect data on humans but it's correlated with a lot of things it's correlated with some personality changes and it's correlated with schizophrenia and it's correlated with i believe owning a lot of cats but again correlation is not causation so it's possible that people with a lot of cats are more likely to get it rather than someone gets it and then you know goes out and grabs a bunch of cats for their house the more you know Nature is beautiful. I'm trying to think. I feel like I had an, another one. You know what? It's just we're so well prepared for the outdoors that we're pretty good. It's not like we're going to dehydrate because we bring plenty of water. We're not breaking our ankles because we brought the wrong kind of shoes. I have another one I can tell. It's very different from the, the last story. It's when I was 15, I became obsessed with trying to rediscover the ivory-billed woodpecker. And that obsession kind of carried through the rest of my teen and early 20 years, I actually have in my podcast closet right now, a poster that has a picture of an ivory bill and says, I want to believe. And I got that poster like a couple months ago. So I guess you could say that the obsession continues till today. But <laughs> a college professor from, I, I believe, Auburn had published a book claiming that he had rediscovered ivory billed woodpeckers in the Choctahatchee Swamp in Florida. Uh, it's in Florida's Panhandle. So I, I went out there. This was just after I got my driver's license. I went out with a couple friends and we camped in the swamp for a few weeks. And we went out to some of the places that he recommended and we looked for them. And we saw a lot of really wild things like this swamp. Not a lot of people go there because it doesn't have a lot of access. It's mostly locals going in, but it has. Well, here's the quickest way to describe it. Every now and then I'll see a news article that's something about the biggest tree east of the Mississippi. And it'll be like some big cypress tree. And they'll be like, this tree is 2000 years old. And it's, you know, X number of meters in diameter. And it's the biggest tree east of the Mississippi. And I'll be like, no, it's not. Or it's not that unusual. They'll say all the old growth forests are gone, you know, and then I'll be like, well, not quite because this place, it it just has stands of trees like that. It has stands of of cypresses that are, you know, a thousand years old and, and wide enough that you could, you know, camp inside them with your hammock stretched from side to side in the hollow interior. It has a lot of trees that I think of as regular trees, like sweet gums. It has, it has a lot of trees that I don't think of as that big, but they're just like times two. Sweet gums in particular, like red maple are, is another example. They're just much, much bigger. Like you can't get your arms around them size. And you realize that for your entire life, you've been living in a dwarfed version of the way that the forest looks under ordinary circumstances because there's this remnant old growth forest that's just hiding out there. Damn, that's so, cool. 
years and years later, uh, after I, I went back to this place a bunch of times, I've never found an ivory build woodpecker, spoilers, but I kept going out and uh, it's a great reason to go explore. And I went out with some friends in college and that trip was a disaster. It rained every day and we got flooded out of our campsite in these swamp islands that are only land for part of the year. It was supposed to be dry and the water was supposed to be low, but it was high. And in the course of the night, while we were out in the middle of this island, quote unquote, it became not an island anymore. (laughs) We had just enough land that we made it till morning and then we packed everything up. and, And in the course of the time we were there, it pretty much just got swallowed up by the river. But we were still out there. We were still exploring for the day. It was our last day there. And my friend and I were out there and he got in the water and his waders to take a photo of an alligator. And he dropped his camera into the water, <gasps> fell off of his tripod. And he dove in after it just on reflex to save the camera. And he got it. But in the process, he overtopped his waders. It was about 50 degrees outside and there oh, was no. rain coming on. So from that moment on, we were just trying to get out. And we start leaving and it's been raining the whole time we've been here, but it starts to pick up. And and right before the rain picks up, there's a big breeze that comes through. And we were dead in the center of this swamp island that you could kayak over at this time. And there were all these old growth trees all around us, mostly cypresses. And they start dropping huge branches when the wind hits them all around us. So we're kayaking through this snag forest and there's huge branches crashing down in front of and behind us in all directions. And he, meanwhile, is on a time limit because he's, you know, soaking wet, can't get the water out of his waders. And he is within, you know, the range of temperatures that you can get, that you will get hypothermia if you wait long enough in. But here's where the story gets boring. We made it out. <laughs> That's, but also imagine. If getting hypothermia in general is not enough of a reason to get out, getting hypothermia in, if he actually got hypothermia in Florida and had to tell that story, nobody would believe him. Or they <laughs> they would make him like retell it. They'd be like, you got hypothermia in Florida? I've been there and I don't think so. But it's like just the wet cold will get you. So it's good you made it out, you know, for all the reasons, but also so he didn't have to justify his getting hypothermia in Florida for the rest of his life. Cause that's just a, a heavy burden to bear. Yeah. That would just be embarrassing, honestly. Yeah. And then the, the coda to that story is that after we got out and we got dry, he made corned beef hash for us at the, at the, basically the parking area where we and you got food poisoning trucks. and died. I didn't get food poisoning, but I almost got something worse. So in that moment, <laughs> After having been out in the swamp for, you know, a couple of days and, and, and had this experience of that day and done this whole thing, that corned beef hash was without comparison, the best tasting thing I had ever eaten in my entire life. Oh, yeah. So I was I was so enthralled with it. And it was the only time I'd ever eaten corned beef hash. This must be my favorite food. <laughs> and then a couple months later in civilization, I saw it in the store and I cooked it and it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's some corned beef hash slander my man <laughs> that's that's good stuff you're you're buying the wrong corned beef hash <laughs> or you're maybe cooking I'm, it wrong or something maybe now, i'm just cooking it wrong i've had corned beef hash on a schooner trip to find whales and we never found any whales but it was some pretty damn good corned beef hash <laughs> no it was a new england boiled dinner 
that's what it was, which is corned beef, potato, cabbage, carrots, all boiled in one pot. And all the flavors get to know each other to quote the office. Yeah, we're on topic here. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that note. Did y'all have anything else you wanted to share today? Go out and look for some nature outside. It's closer than you think. This is Wild Green Streams. Uh, you should go ahead and throw us some money on Patreon if you've got that. And our Patreon is called patreon.com slash wildgreenmemes. We send you cool stuff in the mail. Also, if you are subscribed. Until next time, I'm Rhett. I'm Io. And I'm Curtis. And happy Year of the Raccoon.